Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, awakening, and more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm very happy to be speaking again with Daniel Ingram. Daniel Ingram is an emergency medicine physician and longtime Dharma practitioner. He's the author of the seminal text, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, which is now out in its second edition, and also the main force behind the radical Dharma Overground website, which specializes in a brand of unusually frank discussion of meditation. And now, the episode that I call Doubt, Faith, and Fun in Meditation Practice with Daniel Ingram. Daniel, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast for your third episode. Wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. It's so good to have you here. This is the first time we're actually doing it live together in the same studio, so I'm looking at your face instead of talking to you in a disembodied way from San Francisco to Alabama. So this is awesome. You are traveling through town for what reason? I am wandering from a month of being the resident teacher at Dharma Treasure slash Cochise Stronghold, Chuladasa's place, where they were kind enough to invite me. And now I'm wandering up to do a month-long fire casino retreat at Denman Island at the Hermitage with some friends, including you. Including me. I love Denman Island. I've been there several times just as a, I don't know, tourist, I guess you'd call it. I, Vancouver Island is one of my favorite destinations, and Denman's just in the archipelago there, one of the many, many islands. Such a beautiful, beautiful place. So I can't wait to go on retreat there. Now, how did it work at Kochi Stronghold? Was Chuladasa also there with you? Yeah, he's still got some health issues, but seems to be doing a lot better. But he was there a reasonable portion of the time. You know, people were doing whatever techniques they found interesting. There was a range of things from Mahasi noting to Fire Casino to TMI, the Mind Illuminated based practices, to some other things like kind of Zen, like just sitting with self inquiry. Anyway, so there was a range of what people were interested in practicing and their adults, they can make their own choices and I supported them as best I could. And if they wanted to interview with me, there was just a sign-up sheet. And then we had a Q&A in the evenings where Chuladasa was also often there. And it was really fun to see how another teacher with that much experience answered questions and thought about the world. And we got to contrast and compare and see where we agreed and sort of debate things where we might have some misunderstandings or different ways of languaging or conceptualizing of things. Did you and guys it was have, a lot of fun. Did you guys have live Dharma combat in front of the crowd? We did have some live <laughs> Dharma combat in front of the crowd. So audiences tend to like that kind of thing and they rarely get to see it. And Especially think, with the luchador masks that you guys had. Uh, well, you know, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a really fun time. And I think Horizon expanding for everyone involved. And I got to learn a lot. And hopefully they did learn something too. I've definitely heard some really good reports from that retreat. I'm curious, that's your first time teaching formally, correct? Uh, this is my first time teaching in a center like that in that kind of way. I've run a number of retreats where I was either meditating with everyone, we were all sort of co-adventuring, or it was just a single person who would come to my house for some period of time and meditate there. 
Now, the last time we talked, we spent the majority of the time discussing a new model of teaching meditation, which you characterized as sort of the postgraduate student model, where, as you alluded to just a moment ago, you assume everyone's an adult and that they can make their own decisions and that they're guiding their own practice in general, and that you are there, or Chuladas is there as kind of a senior assistant or something. And I'm curious, were you able to experiment more with that model at this retreat? Yeah. In reality, what ends up working out is a range. And it varies moment to moment with the other practitioner and what they're experiencing and their levels of knowledge and competence and comfort and adventurousness and sense of independence versus dependence, temporary or, you know, however. And so what ends up happening in reality, despite my beautiful ideals, is some real mix of sometimes I really need to provide just core Dharma theory or core points of information. Sometimes I'm just sort of reminding people of things they already know, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, of course I know that. Okay, you're right. Thank you. I just forgot it for a moment, which happened a lot, you know. And other times there were practitioners there that were like, yeah, this is going great. I'm really enjoying the exploration. And they would just report what was going on with them, which was more of a service to me than anything for more data points of the range of what people can experience when they do these interesting things. And there was very little guidance needed. And it was really more just inspiring to see people practicing well and having a great time doing it and seeing where it led. That's so cool. In my teaching work, I sometimes find that some people really just want me to tell them what to do next. <laughs> there is definitely some of that. And so some people are more comfortable and more, you know, parent-child or, you know, teacher-student-like relationships, which I am not as comfortable in those me, kinds me, of roles either, and yeah. would often say, do you realize that this interview is kind of the same interview again and again, and I'm not really seeing the recognition of things we've already talked about and the application of those come on anytime, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and others were very much more collegial, which is something I'm more comfortable with. It's not that I'm not happy to help when there's something they don't know or some sutra they haven't read or some experience they haven't run into before, happy to normalize and lend wisdom and, you know, whatever my quirky perspective is on things. So that was all fine, but that can exist in a number of sort of relationship contexts and vibes, some of which I consider way more healthy than others. Yeah. Good. So there you were at Kochi Stronghold. Now you're here in San Francisco, I think, hanging out with the brain machine folks. Yeah, definitely hung out a bit with the neuroscience technorati. That was fascinating. They're doing really interesting things, and it will be really interesting to see where all that goes. Did you get your brain melted at any point? They offered to melt my brain, and they said the rate of seizures would be low. Um, and, but acceptably I, low. Acceptably low, and unlikely to be an early adopter, unlike such paragons of adventurousness and experimentation such as, say, Shinzen Young, yes. who I applaud his willingness to be a guinea pig. So, okay, so here you were in the Bay doing brain machine stuff with Technorati, getting shown the works, as I understand it. Yeah. And then what happens after this? So after this, I basically drive up the coast with brief stops in Portland and Seattle and then to see family near Vancouver. 
and then a month-long fire casino retreat, which I'm so excited about, with a whole bunch of really cool practitioners. That's at Shannon Stein's place. Yeah, right? the Hermitage. The Hermitage. Okay, so we had one whole show where we talked about the fire casino, mm -hmm. but you've actually had quite a bit of development in the fire casino since that show. You brought out a book together with Shannon. There's been a lot of people practicing it. And I'm terrified to ask you this question because probably the answer is like maybe six excited days long. Uh, <laughs> but I would just say in that time, has there been any major shift or major new perspective on the fire casino that you want to share with the audience before we move into other topics? The thing I just love about it is that people go deep relatively quickly. It's an incredibly responsive object, which are all things we probably talked about earlier. What's really neat to see is people differentiate across a range. A lot of people start out looking very, very similar for the first few days or, or so. What do you mean looking similar? In terms of what they're reporting, they're dealing with you know the dot they're seeing and the stuff around it, which we tend to call the Merc until it starts to become something more clear. And then they start going in their own directions, whether they're working on color control or image control or starting to see photorealistic things or starting to feel energy or starting to see faces or animals or strange fractal patterns. And then what individual people do with each of those things and how they relate to them is fascinatingly different. So this one guy I was just hanging out with, super nicest guy, like kept playing with shadows and darkness. It was really interesting. <laughs> he was like the cheeriest fellow. And then he'd be like, yeah, I was just painting blackness across all the stars and all the stars were disappearing. And then I was able to take these shadows in the corner and they became all these shadow beings that were crawling all around the walls of my room. And it was like, <laughs> wow, that's interesting. And he was just having fun with it and had a really positive, clean relationship to all of these things, but you just never know where people are going to go. He would draw sort of green streaks of like green glowing plasma in the air and then sort of grab handfuls of it and paint it on his hands and arms and like move them around like day glow hands and arms in the room. And that level of concentration is obviously pretty powerful. And he was really astounded to see how strong his concentration had gotten and how experiences that would have seemed totally unattainable or outside of his abilities just a week or two earlier were suddenly just the most natural thing in the world. I'm curious, as the Dharma practitioner in me reacts, there's always the sense of like, you guys are just goofing around. So, yes. of course, there's nothing wrong with goofing around. Totally but, true. But what kind of results are you seeing? I mean, just to cut to the chase, are people getting stream entry doing this? Yeah, so I know two people who I'm pretty sure have gotten stream entry doing this that were hanging out with me when it happened to them. People moved rapidly through the stages of insight in this. So just about everybody was in dark night territory within three to five days. And a reasonable number of people were getting to equanimity within a week to 10 to 12 days, something like that, depending on how long they were there and how much they practiced and their previous practice backgrounds and just some of their own natural talents. What was really interesting is by not being as in the body is one of the things you were thinking of 
talking about in this thing, a lot of people bypassed a lot of the ordinary pain and complexity that they would ordinarily have gone through. And it was interesting, they'd say, when I drop out of the colors and the sounds of the mantra, all of a sudden there's my body and it might be feeling irritable or restless, but I hadn't even noticed for an hour and then I'd go back into the colors and the sounds and all of that would just go away and I might see some strange images or some weird shapes or whatever, but they're not disconcerting because there were just shapes or images and most of them did very well with those. You know, there's this one practitioner who got into the stage where he said his head was gone, where the observer would typically be was just gone and there were just swirls of brilliant neon colors flowing around in orbital patterns kind of where his head would otherwise be in the sense of observer had just seemed to have vanished and all of the normal reference structures seemed to have vanished. So that's pretty powerful deconstruction of the self to be on the deconstructing yourself podcast. And so it was Our very favorite topic. Yeah, absolutely. And so he was clearly in realms of light and sound changing radically his normal sense of perception of being a localized attention center to while that stuff was happening, that seemed to be gone and all of the normal eyes and you know head structures that would be pretending to be a watcher seemed to just vanish in realms of swirling color. And so he seemed to very much be on the verge of something, obviously, when you're getting to that point of concentration and insight. And so I think it's a very powerful object. It's a vipassana practice because people move through the stages of insight pretending to be a shamatha practice because they go through it in realms of light and sound with a lot more pleasantness and much higher concentration than a lot of practitioners. Pretending to be weird parlor tricks because people do tend to start playing with strange things like seeing the nimitta open-eyed and just grabbing it and like moving it closer because it seemed to be too far away and that kind of thing like with their hands, which seems strange. But... The fascination with that kind of play and that sort of playful attitude builds a kind of natural rapturous curiosity. And I think that element of play and fun has been so beaten out of so many Buddhist <laughs> practitioners that they're afraid of it. And yet we are playful creatures. We like experimenting with new things. We find those naturally fascinating. And that natural fascination tuned the right way and in the right context can become very powerful natural concentration which suspends disbelief which takes us into places we otherwise might not have gone and which i also think all of that really contributes to deepening in the practice and insight as well as making it yours and making it fun and making it something that people really want to engage with and keep doing and that was the thing that everybody kept saying when people would end their retreats i would say to them would you recommend this and they're like oh yes it's fun it's fascinating and it's way more enjoyable interesting than anything i've done before and not to be comparative i'm sure there are lots of other cool fascinating practices and this is a limited sample size i don't mean to say this is the most fascinating or best practice or anything by any means. But they kept saying that it was just so delightful to be able to play an experiment and their concentration got really powerful and they got a lot of insight out of it. And they also got a lot of reproducible competence and sense of competence that they could navigate through each of these sort of stages or bands or layers of mind, recognize them and have tools for moving through them in ways that were not disconcerting or strange in some of the ways that some of the practices they had done before were. And again, a lot of the practices they had done before, I think, are great practices. So I don't mean to be doing any sort of one-upsmanship thing here, but it is a cool practice and people really liked it. And you've brought up a large number of interesting points there that I'd love to touch on, but the main one, besides just the very important and interesting fact that it is a useful practice you're getting 
real awakening for some people doing this. That's the most important point, I think. But secondly, the thing that I'm hearing that is just completely fascinating to me is that you are saying that people are contacting mental image and mental sound in this practice and not contacting body sensation. And as we both know, for the world of Vipassana, body sensation is kind of the ground floor. That's what everything's about. It's about getting in your body, getting in body sensation, feeling your body. It's almost to the level of, you know, fuck your mind and your thoughts. That's all bullshit. Get in your body. The body is the only truth. And you're working with something quite different there. So can you start to tease that out a little bit? Yeah, so I like being a little bit subversive sometimes. and Really? <laughs> and letting, A, the playful aspect, the sort of playing around with powers shamelessly aspect and being encouraged to do that and just explore all that. But also the sense of just saying, this is a way to bypass the body. <gasps> Did I say that? <laughs> oh my this, God. This is a way to become strangely disembodied, to be able to experience mental things in realms of light and sound and color and sacred geometry and fascinating images and all of that that can leave the body far behind oftentimes. Not that some jonic bliss or tranquility or whatever might not sort of trickle down through the simple power of strong concentration. It often does. But, you know, a lot of people on this retreat who were playing around with this said, well, I had never really woken up my visual field this way. I'm seeing differently. I'm experiencing the whole world of sight that I walk around in now so much more as natural object. And as visuals are such a huge part of our experience, that seems like an important thing to wake up. They were also seeing the images in their mind of thoughts with a level of clarity that they hadn't been seeing them before because they're you know spending 10, 12 hours, 14 hours a day with mentally generated images. And so they were noticing their thoughts come up as colorful things in space in a way that they hadn't been before, which made them way more obvious and way more clear and felt more awake and present to them, as well as waking up the inner voice and making it a fascinating object. So people were having the mantra do fascinating things like become massive choirs with multi-part harmony and things that were ringing in the room as loud as any music they could ordinarily hear with their ears. And they would recognize that by doing that, they were making their inner mental talk loud and a part of the room, but yet in some way also clearly objectified, but not in a like... Diffusing from it. Yeah, diffusing from it. And so it was just becoming more sensations that were clear, but also just happening in space. And I think they were noticing that it was way easier to then be aware of one's inner mental landscape. Also, the tactile thing and body image thing that they were noticing, a lot of people were noticing that even in the dark, they had this sort of like luminous image of where their hands or legs or other body parts were as they moved around and could see with much more vibrant clarity all of the sort of ordinarily subtle images that we would associate with our bodies, but they were seeing them much more brightly and clearly. So waking up all of that part of our experience And so I think while the body is a great object, and I've done a tremendous amount of meditation on breath and other bodily sensations, waking up these other sense modalities I think is really valid and important also as part of sort of a more complete package that embraces the whole range of our experience. And people really like it. 
Yeah, we do something similar in Shenzhen style Vipassana because we are spending so much time meditating on mental image and mental talk. Most of those features that you described arise or something similar yeah. for some people sometime. And the main thing I find interesting is that you don't get into a mode of sort of hating on the mind, hating on the intellect, hating on thoughts. It's all good. Yes. You know, it's like an interesting object when you're defused from it, you can work with it. And I think something that you're bringing up that's really important is for many people, the body is a minefield of trauma and yes. pain. And to just say, hey, your whole practice is to drop into your body. And again, just like you, I've done a zillion years, <laughs> hours of body meditation, but have also noticed for myself and for many people that just dropping into the body can be incredibly painful or incredibly difficult, depending on your past. And there's a lot to be said for working through that pain, working through that difficulty. Of course, that's worth doing. And yet, it's a big barrier if you're just beginning or you're just beginning to work with that. That level of discomfort is maybe too much. Yeah. So working with this mental imagery, mental talk, mental tactile stuff, all of that provides a tremendously powerful meditation object that isn't so disturbing. Something about mental images that's so interesting for me, even the worst ones are like, I think of taking a horror movie and turning the sound off. Horror movies with the sound off, have you ever done this? I haven't. They're not scary. <laughs> it removes all the scariness. The sound is the part that makes it upsetting. Hmm. The images might be disgusting or something, but they are not terrifying hmm. when it's just images. So there's a way that working with mental image or mental talk can be both high concentration object, high insight object, but not disturbing in the same way. Something that, like you're saying, is kind of fun. Absolutely. And... Shout out, by the way, is a sort of a adjunctive bit of information. Check out David Trelevin's book, Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness, which talks a lot about spaces in the body that might not be safe because trauma is stored there, sort of in the same way as the body keeps a score, which is another good book on the subject. And yeah, I found that a lot of people really appreciate an opportunity to explore sort of jhanic states or deep concentration states or other things in a way that is somewhat disembodied because not that we may not have to figure out ways to go there at some point eventually uh, you know in some gentle or skillful way that's not re-traumatizing but a lot of people even who didn't have all kinds of trauma really appreciated the adventure of looking at this from a totally different perspective and sense modality I often find, and I'm curious if you're finding, that some of this physical trauma gets resolved in the mental images or gets resolved in the mental sound. Yes. So I had a very strange set of experiences on my last fire casino retreat. So emergency medicine is known to be traumatic. We see terrible things, and I saw large numbers of terrible things, the kind of which seeing even one might give someone PTSD, much less hundreds of times, and a lot of very stressful situations. I won't go into descriptions, but you can imagine. And when I retired from emergency medicine, I found this 
a lot of images suddenly started flooding up that hadn't been well processed because I just had to go on to the next patient. There was no time to think about them. And on my last retreat, I actually found that I sat down in a space where all of a sudden these images started coming up, but they were just coming up like these little sort of colored phone icons, like, and they would just kind of spin around and disappear and feel like they had been released as some kind of trauma. This is on day seven when my concentration was quite strong. And image after image would just come up and sort of flip around and disappear and release. After that meditation, I felt like I had been crying for like an hour, but I hadn't been. My whole body felt loose and shaky in that sort of weird post-workout kind of way. But a huge backlog of unprocessed bodily pain and sort of stored horrible images and kind of lots of little micro PTSD-like causing things just seemed to have vanished and disappeared and my dreams got way nicer and my body felt way lighter. And so this was a practice that was just purely looking at them as visual images and yet it still released them quite nicely in some sort of almost cartoon-like way. Good, so we've reclaimed the mind and yet now we're in the mind. So I'm sure you're finding that to be its own sort of minefield for people. What are you noticing coming up for many practitioners? Yeah, so the big thing, the theme of this retreat is hindrances for smart people. So the people who were on this retreat were incredibly accomplished, very intellectually sophisticated, lots of terminal degree types who have the muscles of a gorilla when it comes to analytical power and a critical mind that can take things apart and you know put it back together. And so incredible strength in that way. But that often became a hindrance, as we all know, if we you know hang out in these scenes where people are trying to overthink things, to overanalyze things, and to not just sort of trust in the practice or even themselves. So a lot of self-doubt, I think, manifesting in ways that seemed, you know, like very complicated Dharma analysis or sort of advanced analytical questions or curiosity about Dharma theory or various approaches or whether or not this emptiness was as empty as somebody else's emptiness or <laughs> these kinds of conversations. But a lot of times that would interfere with practice. And so one of the recurring themes was, can you just make these experiences happening now, what, regardless of what your object is, the basis of the path and put that other mode of critical thinking aside, have some faith and have some sense of confidence that your experience is a reasonable basis for awakening, which seems like something that would be obvious, except people have to be reminded again and again and again. Well, as you mentioned, especially for people in this group, that's not their training. Right. The training isn't, you know, let go and let God, right? Certainly <laughs> true. But that said, I've been in context with people who had tremendous faith and watched it just clear away staggering numbers of problems where it just, in the face of the light of their faith, in the techniques or in the teachings or whatever, not that we should abandon common sense or reasonable boundaries or any of those things we clearly shouldn't, but yet, once one finds a reasonable tradition with reasonable techniques in a reasonable, non-exploitive setting that's safe and all of that, the ability to then recognize that things are okay and to be able to proceed based on that sense of comfort that things are okay, 
is often not very well developed. And I have spent a lot of time thinking about the question of balancing wisdom and faith and figuring out how to generate faith that is skillful, that is not blind or foolish, that does not make one more susceptible to exploitation or any of the other problems that we see in hyper-faith-based traditions, but that simultaneously does cut through a tremendous amount of doubt and fear and skepticism and hypercritical analytical thinking and allow people to actually just follow instructions and practice. And that was one of the great questions that I wrestled with a lot during this month. What are your thoughts? In the situations I've been in when I have, in fact, seen those levels of faith that you're describing, where people just give their whole body, mind, and spirit, and soul, and effort to a practice, typically that has been in other cultures, and often in situations where, frankly, there's not a lot of education. And so I've often wondered if it's one of the just downsides of our culture, where even though we're not doing that well at education, we're probably higher educated, and certainly the people you were working with were very highly educated. Maybe one of the downsides of that is it just is developing literally the opposite of faith, like literally just building up the ability to be skeptical and cynical and ironic and doubtful. And so what I've seen is there's this kind of, I'll just call it like natural faith that comes when you haven't been trained to be skeptical. Definitely true. But yet I know practitioners who, while having a tremendous amount of analytical horsepower on tap, were also able to, in periods where things were safe and reasonable, let that go and develop other forms of wiring and other strengths and other skills, as you obviously being a smart analytical geek who yet came up in a very faith-based tradition were able to do. And I was wondering if you would talk more about that and how that worked and how you were able to set aside some aspects of a relentlessly analytical and powerful mind in that way to do the other. It's funny, this has been coming up a bit lately. The interview that I did with Chandra Easton, we talked about it a little bit. You know, my background was not only analytical and, you know, educated, but also very skeptical and sarcastic and Mm -hmm. ironic and, you know, just dickish. Me too. Yeah. And even though in the Michigan realm I was in, we were nice people, you know, we had fun times and good friends and stuff. There was also a kind of a punk rock edge of just extreme skeptical irony and sarcasm about everything. And I mean, everything. And so, you know, you can get to a point where you just can't ever feel any innocence without it being sarcastic or something beautiful without it being ironic or whatever. Yeah, And that's not such a fun place to be. And yet, the one upsmanship in that world is just who can be more, I guess, sarcastic <laughs> and ironic, even in the, an actually touching situation. So it just kind of builds on itself. And of course, much of academia is that way also. What worked for me in terms of being able to let that go was beauty. You know, I was still able to contact beauty and in a non-ironic, non-sarcastic way. And so the Hindu tradition I was in 
just happen to really focus a lot on really beautiful stuff, whether it's in your meditation practice or in just the surrounding environment of flowers and candles and temples. And, you know, we're going to have clean, nice things all the time. And there's a way that could just sound tight or constrictive. But for me, it was like we were constantly bringing our attention back to beautiful things. And also mentally, like the kind of meditation we were doing, there was a lot of, it reminds me a lot of the kind of imagery. For me, there was tremendous tons of mental imagery coming up that was very rich, complex, detailed, huge worlds. And it was just incredibly beautiful. And all that beauty started to really just melt away the sarcasm and irony because it was so touching and deeply touching without any layers of, I mean, it was just cutting through any analysis. And then on top of it, as I mentioned in the earlier podcast, I was also in a guru tradition with a female, a woman guru. And so it was easy for me to just actually really like her and even love her in that matronly way. And so love melts the sarcasm and opens your heart, right? It melts the cynicism and the doubt. So for me, there was always the ability to contact those things. And when that gets strong enough, it just hacks right through the mental limitations. Yeah, resistances the, and yeah. defenses. After a while, you just it's just give it up, you know, and suddenly you're flooded with tremendous sense of awe and a sublime beauty and love. And I don't know, it just sweeps away the kind of heavy residue of doubt. And for me, that was really, really powerful. Eventually, I had to learn to rebuild it back up. Yeah. You know, just to not completely give myself over to that. Because, of course, as you say, that can be not healthy or safe. Absolutely. Yeah. The sense of beauty and the beautiful objects. So while it's distinctly unpopular and not in vogue to think of beautiful temples or beautiful statues or you know, very formal clothing or all wearing white or a lot of those things in some circles, right? So I'm currently wearing frayed old navy shorts with holes in them and a, a simple black t-shirt and old socks and nothing. You're dispelling drala. Yeah, exactly. Except there is something as I rebel against my own postmodern culture that doesn't seem to care much about these things where the rich don't wear, you know, fancy suits in the culture I run in. They wear t-shirts like everybody else. And yet there is something inspiring and almost inspiring of dignity and poise and things that are not as appreciated these days to meditate in a sort of a sacred, dignified, beautiful Space is something that we have an uneasy relationship with, I think, in at least the cultures I've, I've come from, where we can look at it as excessive or materialistic or needlessly formal or a substitute for real wisdom that breaks down these old hierarchical structures or institutions. And yet I find myself thinking that when I've practiced in those settings, it is true that I found myself adopting a formalness about how I practiced, about how I described things, and that sense of dignity and poise wore off on me in some way. 
And so I struggle when I think about how do you get people the benefits of that sense of dignity and beauty and formalness that just like when you put on a fancy cocktail dress or a tuxedo, you behave differently and people do. That's why people put people in uniforms in workplaces. That's why, anyway, lots of examples. And trying to figure out how to bring in some of that technology that does make one take these things seriously and have faith in them and have a sense of dignity, poise, and decorum about how we handle our minds, our bodies, our practice, and our relationships without it being stodgy or stiff or rigid or, you know, unviolable Which can become things, very, very fast. Which can become very fast. And so I'm also having a lot of internal debate within myself about thinking, how do you find that right balance? Or is it always going to be some oscillation that swings to the, the pole of rebellious informalism or you know, something more beautiful and gilded. Yeah, I don't know, but I do know that that sense of awe, which is part of it, is available even in really simple things. You know, True. Uh, natural objects, nature can be very obviously humble and simple yeah. and yet awe-inspiring, tremendously dignified and have its poise, right? So natural objects offer that. It doesn't have to be a temple, right? Right. So for me, that really, you know, I'm an artist. I've never lost the sense of just being blown away by beauty. And that really, I think, kind of, to overstate it, like saved me. What about you? How did you dig yourself out of the hole of cynical, postmodern uh, dickishness? Yeah, so A, when some of my friends started being able to do these things well and describe it clearly, that helped me some. That helped with some faith because these were similarly cynical intellectual types who yet had found something that really seemed to be working for them. And so that was the first step. The second step was going to these temples and monasteries and places where there was this sense of formality, but it felt very alien to me. Initially, I didn't really understand it. I didn't get the statues or the bowing or the rules. It seemed culturally entirely alien. But finally, one time when I was meditating at the Malaysian Buddhist Meditation Center, I got to see an example of someone whose faith was inspiring a degree of diligent practice that my intellect was not allowing me. And I got to see that this practitioner would just follow instructions very simply and report very simply was making progress that even as someone as dense and arrogant as myself could see was far beyond what I was doing and in half the time. And the teacher was kind enough to gently point that out to me as I came into the interview room after they left as they bowed and bowed and bowed as they left the room. And suddenly it just changed my practice. I saw that their faith and their simply having tremendous faith in the instructions allowed them to practice in a way that I couldn't. And that moment of realization somehow just blew away like the sense of value I was placing on my intellectual mind and my constant analysis and philosophical thoughts and thinking I was so smart. And went back to just very simple, in that case, noting practice and just started noting all day long. You were able to just set it aside. Yes. It was the weirdest thing. Like I had been like so fascinated by it. And then I just realized this is not helping me. 
And it was in that one interview, watching the young woman just report with such faith, her simple, you know, following the instructions all day long and the results of it, that she was able to see clearly the mental objects, you know, so the intentions that preceded actions and the mental objects that followed from experiences in a way that was way more powerful than I was able to. And she had only been there for a few days and I had been there a week, what I doing what I thought was practicing hard, but not really. So suddenly I felt like the analogy I've been using when I described this is like, I felt like I was a guy on a bicycle sort of drafting to go faster off the 18 wheeler of these people's faith, right? Cause I was in a setting where I was being bowed to because I was one of the people who was meditating. I was being fed and they were handing me the food with this tremendous reverence. And they had this deep conviction that what I was doing was sacred was profound, was holy, even far beyond any conviction I had in it at that level. And the whole setup had such powerful demonstrations of faith and dignity that I suddenly just found myself being swept away by that and going, oh, okay, this is amazing. And again, like drafting off of the power of their faith. And it got me to a place I otherwise would not have been able to go, I think, in that kind of way because suddenly I was really practicing well, and if you really practice well, this stuff does powerful stuff. That's certainly the effect that the faith-based meditation had on me was just I was willing to meditate all the time yeah. for years. And so it really supercharges your practice ability, that's for sure. But what are you having faith in? I mean, is it okay to be, you know, have faith in some kind of wisdom Buddha or whatever, or are you just having faith in the practice or do you think it matters? Um, what about faith in the guru? I mean, obviously that's causing huge problems for us. Yeah. So I'm a pragmatist. If faith in the guru leads to good outcomes and good practice and people getting what they want and need to become established within their own practice well and they're in a safe tradition where they're not being exploited. I absolutely no problem with that. I care way more about what works than exactly what it is that works as long as what's working is okay and not hurting people. And so if one has faith in a wisdom Buddha and that makes one practice well, that could be very powerful. If one just has faith in a simple written instruction in a secular mindfulness book and that helps them practice well whatever. Again, I don't care so much what it looks like. I care that it works, but I do spend a lot of time thinking about the range of things that work and each of their pros and cons, their shadow sides, their things they do well and the things they don't do as well. And, you know, obviously each of these things has its issues, right? If you put all your faith in the guru, that can end up creating some subtler overt perpetual state of childlike relationship to the practice but it can also clear away staggering amounts of doubt and allow wisdom to flow in. I mean, you see both examples and it going you know, multiple directions for the same people over the course of time as well. So you don't always know if the short term and the long term are going to be the same. And so I think just having a conversation about the pros and cons of all of these kinds of approaches has value. And then as adults, hopefully will people will be able to choose with a little bit of more metacognitive sophistication about the options that hopefully doesn't just become cynical analysis, <laughs> unless that's helpful. What are you finding in your teaching is helping people, especially, you know, highly critical, highly analytical people to temporarily set that aside because I don't think either of us are saying that's a bad thing or we need to somehow get rid of it. It's just we want to be able to set it aside when necessary. 
Right. That's the critical thing. Can you set it aside for a one-minute practice session, except if you need it, if something starts to get weird or going off the rails, and you can draw on some reasonable Dharma theory or technology or whatever that helps you correct imbalances. I mean, that is the skillful use of it. If you're like, okay, my practice is throwing me, and I know there's this thing, this label or this technique or this set of concepts I can use to help not be thrown by this— And if you apply them and then go back to whatever the technique is, that's really skillful and that's how it's supposed to work. And then the problem is when people just are doing it all the time rather than actually practicing. And so the things I've found, one, just pointing that out to people and saying, learning the level of personal mental control that allows you to skillfully choose from analytical thinking or not analytical thinking will be very empowering to you. And Um, so how are you showing them to do that? The thing I've been mentioning these days a lot is thinking it as a form of sophisticated hindrance attack. So is it doubt? Do you doubt your own abilities? Do you doubt the technique? Do you doubt the teacher? Do you doubt the setting? Do you doubt that other people have been successful of this? And I try to figure out which of the hindrances it is, because if it's doubt, then there are ways you can address that. You can point out, you know, straightforwardly, well, if you learn to see thoughts as thoughts as experiences, here are the benefits of that. You know, if you learn to just notice the sensations in your body of emotions, there will be benefits from that. And so explaining like how the technique directly leads to obvious benefits in a way that they can clearly understand, that can be helpful. If it's fear, trying to figure out what they're afraid of, right? You know, what are you afraid of? Are you afraid you go crazy? Are you afraid that you can't do this? Are you afraid that you're congenitally incapable of meditation or whatever? Which most people are. (laughs) Oh, no. Anyway, um, no. I I am kidding. Yeah. And uh, so trying to figure out what the fear is and what's underlying the drive to the analysis, because I think taking on the analysis is interesting, but there's always some underlying more primal emotion that's driving it. If maybe it's desire to get faster results and they think, oh, maybe if I analyze, I'll get faster results. Or if I think about some other technique or maybe adopt some other technique or consider the whole range of techniques, maybe I'll make the absolute maximum fastest progress I could possibly could and determine the perfectly optimized meditation technique and tradition for me at this exact moment at all times, you know? Right, and which, so, when you think about it, is an extremely effective method for most things out in the world. Correct. And yet it's almost useless internally for mental-type activities like meditation. Sure. And so what I've found is I have to get to the thing that's driving the analysis, because if I don't address that underlying emotion, it's just going to keep happening. And so to use sort of Chuladasa theory, there are sub-minds that have various concerns, and they may all be sort of on different pages. Some sub-minds think, oh, I really want to notice my breath. And some sub-minds think, oh, I really want to think about this technique. You know, And so figuring out which of the sub-minds are operating, and there might be multiple ones, and what their needs are. And asking them, hey, what do you need? What would be the reassuring thing that would allow you to then practice well? And so I got a reasonable amount of mileage out of figuring out which hindrance it was. If it was desire, aversion, fear, restlessness, worry, you know. That's precisely the way I would approach it for most people. And I've read other people have found this also, that that for many people doesn't work. Definitely does not always work. And it seems like there's a deeper hindrance or issue or problem, maybe not deeper, but more firmly rooted or more fundamental that is, I would just call basically self-loathing, not liking or trusting yourself. Sure. And that one is somehow a meta hindrance or something. It's like the root of them all. 
Yes. I don't know about you, but I'm finding it to be like ubiquitous in our culture. I mean, it's something we're training into people, it seems. Yes, I think not to be needlessly critical of capitalism, but... Uh, oh, please, be critical of capitalism. <laughs> critical of capitalism. <laughs> so I think the relentless advertising that tells us we are not rich enough, pretty enough, strong enough, smart enough, accomplished enough, famous enough, whatever it is, these endless messages that then are custom created to then get us buy some product or purchase some service that would compensate for this deficiency that has been created by the images and the advertising um, does have a cumulative effect of really making us think that somehow we are not good enough. And this has been noted routinely as, you know, young females look at fashion magazines or, you know, young boys look at muscle magazines or whatever it is. And so that kind of culture, I think, does have a powerful cumulative effect and a detrimental one when it comes to just believing that one can actually follow simple instructions and get good results from that. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, sometime in the early 80s in college, I had a course where they just made it clear that the purpose of all advertisement is to make you feel bad about yourself so that you buy something yeah. to get rid of that bad feeling. And that literally every advertisement does that in one way or another. And so my solution was, well, I'm just going to stop watching advertisement-based media forever. So I, you know, didn't watch TV for 30 years, yeah. literally. So I wonder if part of being able to let go of some of this stuff was just not having as much exposure to that kind of just drumbeat of capitalist advertisement telling you you're bad. Yeah, I gave up television for 20 years. Like people make Seinfeld jokes and I have no idea what they're yeah, talking I've about. Yeah, I've never seen an episode yeah. of Seinfeld. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we are definitely culturally in touch, the two of us. Um, but yeah, so how do you work with those folks? Or what have you seen to be helpful? Yeah, so the other thing is sometimes I'll just resort to the tactic of saying, hey, I was just some other dude with a floppy mind and I couldn't feel my feet and I couldn't find my breath. And yet somehow, you know, some very skillful people were able to convince me to do these things. And here's exactly what it did and here's how it worked. That sort of in-person thing, I think somehow it has some power that's more abstract. So even if they may not have tremendous faith in themselves, they can sort of say, okay, well, here's another schmo who was able to do this. And then sort of by a back door, think, okay, maybe I actually could too. People's intellects, like until they're intellectually satisfied, they're just not going to relax. And so there are some people with whom you just have to go through all the Dharma questions that they have about what really is emptiness? What is no self? What about true self? And how does that work? And, you know, what about Dharmakaya and Rigpa? And what about the Tibetans say this? And the Vedanta people say that? And the Theravadans say this? And until you've gone through that whole long thing, they're just not going to be okay. But eventually I found there can be an end to it. Eventually the conversations become circular and redundant and they run out of doubts and they start to get that and they're like, okay, maybe that's enough. Maybe I am satisfied now. And so that's sort of the long slog, but sometimes you have to go through the long slog with people and be willing to do that, you know, yes. to get them to feel okay enough and reassure their critical analytical subminds that, okay, all bases have been covered. All concerns have been addressed. Every single, you know, check of my criticisms on this long legal pad list I've brought with me are, are properly addressed. 
And so that takes time, but sometimes can be very rewarding because sometimes these practitioners who you think, okay, they're just, they're unbelievably neurotically obsessed with their intellect. They're never going to get over this. And suddenly they're like, okay, I'm ready to practice. And you're like, whoa, well, okay, great. Let's go. One of the things I've really appreciated about Fire Casino is people can really see progress. And that's the other thing that can build faith. So if you can get them even to do the technique like halfway and they're, you know, they're half critical mind and half practicing, sometimes that's enough so that the practice, even with the critical mind, will get them a first few finger holds on something different. And they're like, okay, wait a second. That really actually did do something. And so if you can just get enough practice, even if it's not great practice, that they can tell some change, some people will really be able to use that as a source of faith if you play to it well and you say, okay, good. Look at that. You were able to do this. You can see that this stuff actually works. Having it work is a big deal. Having it work is a big deal. And which is one of the reasons I like Fire Casino, because people can instantly see when they start analyzing and start thinking that the colors just fade, the image disappears. And it's such a potent reminder and a demonstrator of what this is strong concentration. This is concentration when you're analyzing, which in comparison sucks. And they can start to get that immediate feedback, almost like, you know, this is the meter on their mind, the VU meter or the oscilloscope or the whatever it is, and the volume meter on attention. And they can really see that powerfully. So that's one of the other reasons I like that object, because we're such visual creatures. And it was interesting, even some of the really analytical practitioners, within a week of Fire Casino, they were not coming to talks as much, which were optional, obviously. You could tell they were walking seriously. They were guarding this precious jewel of their strong concentration. And you could see they had come to directly and viscerally appreciate for themselves the difference. And it was really rewarding to see these practitioners suddenly very, very inspired to create the container that would allow them to go super deep because they had felt at least some sense of depth in their own practice. And that was happening pretty rapidly. So probably many listeners to the podcast are doing more or less standard Vipassana, maybe deep Vipassana. Without veering off into the course of Fire Casino, what can they get out of what you're learning from that? What jewels have you brought back from the Fire Casino practice that you can share with, you know, your uh, meat and potatoes Vipassana practitioner. So if one can really stay with the breath and really just go into it, assuming you're using, say, the breath as object, not that there aren't lots of other valid Vipassana objects, but the one thing that I've noticed is people who just stay on the breath relentlessly in a fascinated way and are given some pointers about what to look for, which is all the vividness, all the, as Chuladasa would phrase it, all the intricacy of detail, our minds like detail. And what's cool about the fire casino is it gives a lot of fascinating and interesting visual details. But the breath initially is a lot of boring for people. And they're like, why the breath? I don't get it. What's interesting about the breath. But if you inspire people to look at it way more carefully and notice all the little vivid intricacies of all the sensations that make up the breath and all the stuff around the breath and the rest of the body and our mental images of the breath and all the little shimmers and subtle vibrations and stuff, those are objects that can actually hold our smart mind's attention in a way that's way better than just, oh, that's the breath. Just for the record, you're talking about vividness in body sensation, not in mental image in this case. 
um, I'm actually talking about vividness about all of experience. So because our breath will be a mix of a mental picture of the breath rapidly interlaced with all the physical sensations of the breath and other framing sensations around our bodies and of the back of our heads and of our eyes and, you know, sounds in the room and all of that and space. And so noticing all of that intricacy and detail is another thing that I've found really helps Vipassana practitioners because when they start looking for it, suddenly they will recognize that they're able to train up their mind to a level of resolution by doing that that they clearly did not have before. And that's also one of these things that can generate faith. Oh, I had no idea what mind moments were until I was noticing all these little intricate sensations in the breath. And now seeing mind moments or the Abhidhamic level stuff might be possible. They think, oh, wow, okay, actually this seems doable. So that also provides faith and things that were previously daunting or challenging or seemed absurd or unbelievable. Now they can begin to wrap their heads around and that sort of experience through their own vivid, clear, you know, very fine grained resolution practice, obviously as the kind of thing I like, you know, coming from the tradition of Mahasi Sadao, hyper analytical practice that I do they really can appreciate that. And so if you can sort of give them some pointers about what to look for and then they start to notice some of that, they're like, oh, wow, I couldn't see that before and now I can see that. And that sense of accomplishment gives them the faith to continue to devote energy to the practice and also becomes way more able to hold the mind. The other thing that I found has been neglected in practice is the characteristic of rapture. So that's the middle of the seven factors of awakening. So mindfulness, investigation, energy, get a tremendous amount of attention. That's the first three. And then tranquility and concentration and equanimity get a tremendous amount of attention. But rapture as a characteristic is so neglected. And that oh, beauty- Oh, no, that's, you're, you're not doing it right if you're having a good time. <laughs> well, right, exactly. And so, but that sense of beauty that you found produced such faith, like the beauty of the breath, the beauty of sensitive experience, the beauty of even beautiful visuals of colors- that rapture, to become enraptured by our own experience, to be enraptured by what's going on, to be enraptured by the subtle intricacy of all of these things is very, very powerful. And we are as smart, intelligent creatures that are used to a lot of hyperstimulation. We become bored as heck and dull if we don't have that level of rapture, but not encouraging people to figure out a way to be enraptured by their feet if they're walking or the feel of their socks or like the, you know, the subtle crunch of the gravel under their feet or the beauty of the tree they're walking by as they're doing walking practices. They're, you know, you move around it and there's the parallax of all the front leaves versus the back leaves changing and making beautiful patterns in the sun or whatever. If you can't get people that level of rapture, our minds are often not well held by objects. And that rapture that is so beautifully cultivated by the fire casino or other casino objects or visualizations or the beauty that the mantra becomes all choral or majestic or whatever. That same level of beauty can also be cultivated for less flashy objects such as the breath or our feet or just our ordinary thoughts or our posture or body scanning or our hands or the visuals we walk around or even sounds of birds or even mosquitoes could become these fascinating objects with lots of little details that we can become enraptured by. And so encouraging rapture has been another thing that I've gotten out of the fire casino is like a missing and highly underestimated element of practice. 
Well, and the two things go together. I mean, you, the first thing you described, I would call, you know, in Shenzhen speak, sensory clarity, right? And it's such an important feature in getting people to dig in and become concentrated and become fascinated because our minds are complicated. And it turns out concentration is held more firmly by objects that are rich yeah. and complex, right? So getting into the sensory clarity that fine details of any meditation object is a great way to get all super concentrated very naturally, right? It's just more interesting. But this other feature that you described is the outcome of that, right? As soon as you start getting into the real details of something, it's a rich sensory experience. And so beauty starts arising, the sense of beauty, the sense of rapture, the sense of being, in a way, held by this gorgeous, luscious, richness of experience, right? That's just available right there if you just open up your mind to it. It's such a powerful magnet for attention, for going deep. I mean, this is like some of the real secrets of practice, right? And yeah. They're right there. And yet it's so fascinating that for the people you're working with, the fire casino is bringing this out in a really powerful way. Yeah. And I cannot remember if I did this analogy on any previous podcast, but the analogy that people kept finding so helpful is one that appears in the second edition of my book, which is out and available for free at www.mctb.org. Go and find it if you are interested. But the analogy of the kazoo player, have I told you? The, the famous analogy of the kazoo player has not been shared on this podcast. Nice. So the analogy of the kazoo player is imagine that you go and you spend $100 on a ticket to a symphony concert performance and you walk into the concert hall and there is the orchestra, 100 musicians all beautifully dressed with their instruments tuning up and they all have sheet music except there's this chair in the front of the orchestra with no sheet music and out walks a clearly extremely nervous looking kazoo player and sits down in front of the orchestra. And the kazoo player is there because a large number of people have been cursed by an evil wizard. And the evil wizard has cursed them that they do not believe they can hear the symphony until the kazoo player has done his one note, slightly delayed because he doesn't even know what they're going to play, impression of the symphony. <laughs> but of course, being a kazoo player, he can only do one note at a time. And so the symphony starts playing and the kazoo player then has no idea what they're going to play, has never rehearsed with the orchestra, doesn't even know classical music, and starts doing his one-note impression of whatever sort of the main line or theme or single-note general thing of the symphony is as the kazoo interpreter for the cursed audience members. And so most of us start out this way. We don't believe we've even noticed an object until we've made our mental impression of it. Like you see noters, oh, I wasn't able to note that, so I didn't know it. I wasn't able to label that, so I didn't know it. Even though they knew that the object occurred, and they're obviously, as they're saying, I wasn't able to label that because it occurred too fast, or I didn't know how to label it. And they think that the labeling is actually the knowing when they obviously had the sensate experience itself. But some audience members will begin to sort of get over the curse, because the curse is not perfect, and some will start to wake up from the curse and recognize that 
even if the kazoo player didn't do an impression of some part of the orchestra, they still actually heard that. They, they still it. actually heard the sounds and they'll start following the violin line or the lead piano or the, you know, the oboe or whatever it is that's doing the main line and they'll start to notice, wow, I can sort of notice this main thing and then I can hear the kazoo's impression of it afterwards, but I didn't need the kazoo's impression to hear it. Some other people will get over the curse a little bit more and actually start hearing most of the orchestra. They'll start noticing, wow, there's all this rich harmonic stuff. There's all this, you know, point and counterpoint. There's harmony and there's dissonance and there's tension. And there's not only the lead violinist, the concertmaster, but there's also all the second and third chair violin people. And there's all the timpanis and the percussion and all this stuff. And some people even wake up a little bit more from the curse and recognize that there's the ringing in the room, the resonance, the majesty of this thing ringing through the concert hall. And they can, you know, hear the reverberations in the room and start to notice this much broader and bigger and more complicated experience. And a few people will even wake up so much that they'll start to notice their own reactions to the orchestra, even though the kazoo player is not making any impression of their reactions within their own body. He's just doing the lead line of the orchestra. And they'll start to feel, you know, their heart racing in an exciting part, or, oh, there's sort of a sad part, or the thrill of some beautifully accomplished solo, or whatever it is. And even though the kazoo player is making no impression of any of those, they'll actually experience these things within their own body, which is what they paid the $100 in the first place for, <laughs> is to have a great experience, right? And so the analogy of the kazoo player shows us that we can start waking up to all of these aspects, even though our little linear mind didn't do an impression of them. And it's not like I didn't start out in noting and get a lot out of it, right? Noting is very kazoo player, yeah. right? You see here, feel is very kazoo player. And yet the kazoo player can help us to start to wake up to the fact that we can actually hear the symphony and the rest of our experience and our sights and our sounds and our bodies and all of this stuff just fine. And I had all these conversations, which would seem absurd with people. They're like, yeah, there were all these sensations, but I couldn't notice them. What? <laughs> like, you just, how did you know there were sensations there if you didn't notice them? Like, how's that working? So what did they mean? So what they meant is that they still had this notion that it was only when the kazoo player had made its impression of some sensation that that was the actual knowledge. They hadn't recognized that there would be the sensations that they're making a mental note of or notice, and then there would be after it the mental noting of it, except they had because they could describe the process. And yet there was some depth of understanding of that that had not occurred yet. And so by pointing that out again and again, some of these people would start to go, oh, wait, I felt my foot and then I made a note of my foot. Well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that's an important part of getting to the richness and the intricacy because the kazoo player can't do richness and intricacy. Again, useful, interesting, helpful initially to ground attention and to help us start to stabilize in our actual experience, whatever sense story might be. But again, you know, just another sound or another mental sensation or another quality of experience that's arising in this rich field. And so a lot of people seem to find this analogy very helpful, but though I had to repeat it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting analogy. And, and basically what I think you're describing simply is coming out of thinking about stuff and moving into experiencing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Frank Hiley actually has a cool talk on this at a site called Spirituality Explained. So if you Google that, it's a little bit intellectual and sort of talk over PowerPointy, 
but still very, very helpful for explaining how we can get more and more into the experience of all of this stuff rather than just the thinker and actually bring the thinking mind into the field of experience rather than sort of the other way around, thinking we've only experienced something when we thought about it. A thing that I find really fascinating is where this connection to detail and clarity and richness goes when you get really deep in there. So let's say after you've got the basic concept of this, you have found some richness, you've found some concentration and depth of connection into that, and you're working it, working it, working it, and you keep noticing more and more clarity and more and more sharpness and more and more detail. There's a moment in there, after a while, it might even be after years, where no matter what you do, the object seems muddy and unfocused and you can't hold on to it. It's very, very funny to me now that I know what's going on with that. But at first it was very upsetting Yeah, because I'm like, I've lost my focus. The object's no longer sharp. The object's no longer clear. It's not hyper detailed in that way. Of course, what I'm describing is that when your concentration gets to a high enough level, you're noticing the impermanence in the object and is beginning to show it's dissolving yes. and turning into emptiness. And so actually, your clarity and detail is fine. It's the object itself right. that has become, let's say, not clear. Yeah, one of my favorite stories about this, which again, I cannot remember if I've shared on this podcast, but I tell it somewhat often, so forgive me again. <laughs> this guy came to Christopher Titmus during a question and answer said, Christopher, I'm so confused. I, I have no idea what's going on. And he was like, you're sure? And he's like, oh, yes, I'm totally lost. I, I, just my mind's all over the place. I, I can't figure out anything. He's like, you're quite certain. Oh, yes, absolutely. And this went on and on to the point that people started laughing in the meditation room because this guy was not noticing the clarity of his mind that was noticing unclarity yeah. or confusion or vagueness, or shiftingness, or disappearance, or emptiness, or transience, or any of these qualities, and yet he could describe them. It was wild. So he was perfectly certain that all of these things were true. He was perfectly clear about what he was experiencing. He just didn't like it. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, again, especially he wasn't if recognizing the natural clarity that can be there in vagueness or fuzziness, or disappearanceiness, or out of phaseness, or more diffuse modes of concentration that are not as tight or focused or laser-like. And all of those are just experiences as clear and valid as any other object. But a lot of people get to some of these sort of dissolution-y stages, and they reject them because they don't have that tight laser-like sharpness of some of the earlier stages of meditation, not recognize that concentration does naturally lead to things that are wider, more diffuse, and sometimes along the way, less sharply defined. Yeah, you got very good at focusing on like panes of glass, but yes. now you're trying to focus on like a cloud of mist. Yeah. Your focus is fine. Mm -hmm. It's just a cloud of mist. It's not all sharp like that. And then as Chula Dasa would point out so skillfully, determining what is actually subtle dullness, which might be present as he calls it, versus just an object that is that way. And so that can sometimes be a bit of a fine line that might take a little bit of sophisticated exploration to clarify, because it's possible to both be subtly dull and not really clear about the dullness that's there, or you can be vividly clear about the dullness that's there. 
And that's a subtle difference that might yeah, have some relevance. I, but a beautiful problem to have and an interesting thing to play around in. Absolutely. Speaking of Chuladasa, when he was on the show recently, most recently, he was clear that many more people these days are achieving stream entry. He put that forth as a definite fact. I think that's true. You do? Yes. Okay. And do you think that all of those are legit stream entries? No. So I think it is both true that more people are achieving stream entry and also true that overcalling attainment has become endemic, like as a, a plague, um, a disease, such a ridiculously widespread phenomena, as I wrote in a recent essay on this. When I get emails of people claiming stream entry, I have to check myself, realizing that there is probably about a 2% chance that they actually did, and it wasn't some, a stage I would call something like the arising and passing away, or equanimity, or some other transient experience, because now I've become so cynical about this and seen the overcalling so frequently that it's now my bias, and I, I have to remember that a few of these people actually have done it. So those who are using map-based terminologies, be careful, really carefully consider the criteria, really carefully watch how these things performance test over years. Be wary of assuming that your initial assumption that whatever powerful or profound or transformative experience was what you think it was. I could go on and on about criteria, but I'm coming from a school that basically believes that if you diagnose someone prematurely as having stream entry or some other attainment like that, and they haven't, you can do tremendous harm. Whereas if they actually have the attainment, it's doing all of the stuff it does because it is actually the attainment. And whether or not you call it that or not is utterly irrelevant. It's still doing its cool thing regardless of a name. A rose by any other name would smell as sweet, and the same is true of stream entry. And so I'm extraordinarily cautious about diagnosing this stuff, not just for that reason, but also because a tremendous number of mimics out there exist, and it is easy to be fooled both by ourselves and even by some teachers who might be kind of in a mood to be liked or continue to get donations or to sort of softly use the criteria rather than strictly use them because they want people to appreciate them and they don't want to get involved in that sort of complicated conversation of why they doubt that this might be this or that, which not everybody takes well. Wait, so you're saying that people are signing off on what is essentially not stream entry as stream entry basically to be popular? I think that the subtle pressures of economics, of wanting to be friends with people, of wanting to be a popular teacher, of wanting to be liked, of wanting to not get into conflict, particularly in a mode where highly conflicted or contentious speech is not always thought well of, a tradition where we must all be very, very, very nice, you know. And those conversations can lead to a lot of tension and doubt and conflict and people just leaving and saying, no, I'm sure this, you know, vibratory, you know, energetic experience was stream entry or whatever they're all on about. And a lot of people aren't willing to do that for a wide variety of reasons from relatively benign to things more um, unsavory, let's just say. So on that note, I think we will bring yet another episode starring Daniel Ingram to a close. Thanks for coming on the show, Daniel. Hey, thank you so much for all your additional wisdom and comments as well. It's always great speaking with you. It really is to speak to you as well. All right. Bye-bye. 
that's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash signup, or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>